1: Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, which can be found on page 44 of the New Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. And then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, "'Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord!' Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God.
2: Friends, our second scripture lesson comes also from the Gospel of Mark a little bit later in chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. Feel free to follow along on page 51 in your New Testaments. Listen again for God's word. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At 3 o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said truly, this man was God's son. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. These used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee and there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Ernest Becker uh, won a Pulitzer Prize in the mid-1970s for a book he wrote entitled The Denial of Death. The premise of the book goes something like this, human civilization of all kinds and in all times is ultimately, he argues, an elaborate defense mechanism against the knowledge that we are all going to die. For Becker, the core of human existence is riddled and perplexed by this deep anxiety. He writes, this is terror. To have emerged from nothing, to have a name, to have consciousness of self, to have deep inner feelings and excruciating inner yearning for life, and for self expression, and with all this yet to die. Albert Camus once said the philosopher's only real problem is the problem of death. This problem of death, and by extension, the problem of evil, and the problem of human suffering, the problem, to paraphrase the great poet Robert Burns, of our inhumanity to one another, these problems have often been used as stones hurled by critics to shatter the glass glass houses in which the pious and the faithful live. The refrain has become so familiar to us, hasn't it? If God is good... If there is a God at all, if that God is good, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much suffering in my life? If God is all-powerful and good, then wouldn't it stand to reason that God would eradicate human suffering once and for all? Uh, To be sure, these stones, these problems of death and evil, of human suffering, of our inhumanity toward one another, coupled with the belief in a good and all-powerful God, these problems are no longer exclusive to people who still have the audacity to believe in the 21st century. These deep and profound Questions in many ways, are now being uncoupled from theology. In other words, they are being thrown at the glass houses of science and technology. They're being thrown at, at political structures and institutions and the marketplace. Many had come to believe, you see, that these endeavors, that these entities would be reliable replacements for God. That in our secular age, we no longer need to posit the idea of the divine for these entities would replace that need. And since the Enlightenment, people have been gradually giving up on God and they've put their trust in other things only to find themselves asking the same exact questions. How is it that our science and our technology, how is it that our politics and our institutions or our wealth or our ideologies have yet to deliver us from evil, have yet to deliver us from death? How is it that these that we've put our trust in have not eliminated the problem of human suffering Is it not so that we live in a world where every house seems to be made of glass? Every house seems fragile. Every house seems to struggle with these problems that have, as Becker once argued, plagued us since the dawn of human civilization, the problem of death, The problem of suffering, the problem of evil, and the problem of our own inhumanity. For our purposes this morning, let us remember which house it is that gives us shelter on this day, the first day of Holy Week. It's the house of Christian faith. And throughout the ages, many living within this house have sought to be honest. They have sought to be straightforward about the problems of death, evil, and human suffering. After all, our sacred texts are unflinching when describing these realities. The scriptures do not shy away from the truth that began our Lenten journey Several weeks ago on Ash Wednesday when we heard from dust we have come and to dust we shall return. Death is real. Human suffering is real. Evil is real. Our inhumanity to one another is very, very, very real. It's not an illusion. It's not something that the friend of God or the follower of Christ can simply deny or ignore with some inappropriate, exclusive, hyper-focused gaze out into heaven and constantly repeat the refrain, I know one day things will get better. Well, I believe. Friends, I believe. I believe. And I trust in the words of Revelation 21 that say that one day there will be no more pain. There will be no more crying. There will be no more death. A new heaven and a new earth will, will come. But we are not at that day yet. And until that day comes, we are called by the scriptures to engage suffering with a humble realism that does not whitewash the problem it truly is. So as we find ourselves in the second to last week of a series we have called Where God Stands, we recount the fact that we have named the people and the places where we are most likely to find God on this Lenten journey. The scriptures are clear on this point. God stands with the poor and the oppressed. God stands with the widow and the orphan. Two weeks ago, we heard Rebecca preach about how God stands with children. Last week, we heard from Ryan as to how God stands with the stranger. And today, we affirm the truth that God stands with those who suffer. That God stands with each and every one of us in this way. The witness of the scripture is clear on all counts. God stands with these and for these in a preferential way. And if we want to befriend God, if we want to know who God is, then we stand with these and we stand with the suffering as well. On this Palm Sunday, we, we heard Keenan read this old familiar story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As the word of God made flesh, as the word of God incarnate, Jesus rides in To suffering. Jesus is riding into suffering, to be with people who are suffering, as Sarah Kate reminded us. And he rides in to meet his own suffering. As well. He rides in as the promised Messiah, as the Savior, as the Christ, as the great deliverer for those who are suffering under the brutal regime of Rome. And with shouts of Hosanna, Lord, save us, he is hailed as the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And what is so fascinating about this scene connects to two things. First, it connects to to what we may perceive were some of the expectations of the people gathered for that parade, but also connects to this conversation about suffering because it is quite possible that these who gathered for that great parade were thinking, would this be the day that the Messiah would eradicate evil once and for all? Would this be the day that the so-called King of Kings would annihilate death and that it would be no more and that human suffering would be something of an age that has now passed, would the rabbi from Nazareth be God's instrument to inaugurate the reality promised in Revelation 21, no more death, no more suffering, no more crying, no more pain, would today be the day. And what we discover by week's end is that not only will Jesus not eradicate evil on earth, not only will he not annihilate death, not only will he not end human suffering, but he will be betrayed. He will be called God forsaken. He will suffer and he will be executed on a Roman cross. And friends, it is here that we are confronted by a profoundly perplexing piece of Christian theology that anchors the Christian faith. When given the choice, when given the choice between putting an end to human suffering, to eradicate evil of all kinds, when given that choice between, between eradicating, annihilating death, or entering into human suffering, to be with people who are suffering, and to experience the ultimate suffering, which is death itself, when Jesus is given that choice, He chooses the latter. He chooses to be present with those who suffer. And he demonstrates in his own life a willingness to suffer. And friends, it just may be that that choice, that choice has been for many the very reason they have walked away from the Christian faith. The choice that that he made is the very reason that so many have left God behind. They have abandoned their faith because their own personal suffering or their witness of evil and suffering and death in light of the reality that God could have stopped these things, that God could have put an end to this reality, knowing that for so many is too heavy a load to bear. But let's give those folks credit because they read the situation accurately. They tell the truth. They know what they are dealing with here. When Jesus has a choice to annihilate and eradicate suffering or to enter into it, he chooses to enter in, he chooses to suffer. If you're still interested in this conversation, in this perplexing notion within the Christian faith, let me suggest to you a book that has changed my way of thinking about human suffering. It's a book called God and Human Suffering, written by a theologian some years ago by the name of Douglas John Hall. It's one of those books that in my own personal faith when I was struggling with reconciling this notion of an all-powerful God, and yet there still being evil and suffering and death in the world, it was a book that spoke right into my life in a way that changed me. And one of the insights gleaned in Dr. Hall's book is his insistence, and this is going to be hard for some of us, but his insistence that some suffering, not all suffering, but that some suffering belongs to the created order by God's design. That some suffering that we experience is God's intention as part of the created order. In order to unpack that, I need you to go back to your Sunday school days. For some of you, that's many, many, many years ago. For some, you're in Sunday school right now. And I want you to recall the creation stories. Ryan in his sermon last week mentioned the creation stories if you were here, but I'm, I'm trusting that you have a familiarity with these stories in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Now, now think back to your Sunday school days and think back maybe to being in worship, to a preacher getting up, a Sunday school teacher getting up and saying the Garden of Eden was perfect, right? You may have heard that along the way the garden of eden was was perfect it was a suffering free zone there were no problems in the garden of eden it was a utopia well dr hall asks is that true i mean consider this within the creation story adam the human one experiences loneliness that's what the scriptures say in the garden that adam experiences loneliness and loneliness It's most certainly a form of suffering. Those within the sound of my voice know loneliness. Those who experience it know of it as a form of suffering. But friends, without that struggle, without without that experience of loneliness, how could we possibly ever know the delight that comes in realizing that you're part of a family and that you're loved and that you're cared for? Without the potential of being lonely, how could we ever know the depths of romantic love? Well, Without the experience of suffering in this frame of loneliness, how could we ever come to know the at-homeness that so many of us have experienced in being a part of a Christian community like this one? Loneliness is essential in knowing such things. And so God creates Adam, the human one, with the capacity to suffer in this way. It's part of the created order. He goes on to say that this isn't the only bit of suffering that's part of the created order. He says, There's also limits within the created order. This is stating the obvious, but God creates us with limits. We have limitations. Hall writes this. We are not big enough or strong enough or wise enough or old enough or young enough, agile enough, versatile enough. And much of what we call suffering stems from the frustration which results from the circumscription of our powers. And what is the symbol in the creation story that represents our limits? It's the tree that's in the center of the garden. The tree called... The tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that tree's fruit is off limits. No one is allowed to partake. It represents our creaturehood. It represents our limitations. And this sense of limits leads, says Hall, to a third form of suffering. And that's the suffering that comes from the realities of temptation. And what's the most basic fundamental form of temptation in the garden story? To eat the fruit. To eat the fruit to partake of it, to try and exceed one's limits as a creature and to become like God. Do you remember what the serpent says to Adam and Eve in the garden? It says, if you eat this fruit, you're not going to die. You're actually going to be like God. Not a creature, but God. That's why the first commandment, Given to Moses and the people of Israel in the desert is, I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. But how many of us have brought suffering to ourselves? How many of us have brought suffering to others because we sought to overcome our limitations and to replace God with ourselves? How much suffering is rendered in the world when the creature tries to be the creator? We'll get back to that in just a moment. But I want to state clearly that there are forms of suffering, some forms of suffering that are inherent in the created order, and they actually serve a purpose in God's mission. Even death itself, think of it like this, even death itself is a servant of God in an ontological sense And what that simply means is that death helps us know who we are, that we are creatures, that we are human beings, that we are all going to die, and that we are all utterly dependent on the grace and the mercy of the creator, God. These sufferings serve God's purpose in unveiling to us who we are, and what we're called to do. We're creatures created for love. We're creatures created for communion with God and with one another. We're creatures created with limits that make us utterly dependent on our creator. And we all have free will. We all have free will to choose or not choose and try to transgress those limitations. And friends, without that choice, without that choice, without freedom... There can be no love. And if there's no love, then there's no God. And if there is no God, there is no life. These forms of suffering that I've just mentioned shouldn't be annihilated. They shouldn't be eradicated. Because these forms of suffering, loneliness, limits, and temptation all serve God's purpose in letting us know exactly who we are, in letting us know that God is with us even in this form of suffering. I want to close with this, and I want to be very clear on this point, that while there is some suffering that belongs to the created order to serve God's good purposes, there is certainly suffering that is not found in the service of God. This must be said... The the suffering born from, and this goes back to Burns's poem, our inhumanity to ourselves and to one another, that kind of suffering we declare is an enemy of God. That form of suffering is not actually part of the created order, but it's something that results not from the will of God, but from our own will, our own desire to be God and to play God, to transcend our limitations. That is the suffering that will meet Jesus in his crucifixion. That is the suffering that will have him rejected. It'll have him betrayed. It will have him beaten and nailed to a tree on a hill called the skull. That is the suffering, not born of God, but born of us, born of our sin. And perhaps that is why 1 Peter puts it like this, that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Friends, this is the dual message of the cross of Jesus Christ. On one hand, Jesus stands with those who suffer as part of the created order. So we might know that we were created for relationships, that we were created to trust in God, and that we were created to let God be God and nothing else. But Jesus also stands with those who suffer as ones who receive evil born out of humanity's desire to play God. The cross represents sinful humanity's rejection of God and its shadow looms some 2,000 years later as a judgment for the daily ways we crucify God, for the daily ways we crucify each other, and for the daily ways we crucify ourselves. Even still, God chooses to take all of this on. God chooses to bear the suffering of the world so that no one else has to, to bear this enemy suffering that's outside the created order. And if we are to stand with God as God stands with those who suffer, then we must make these forms of suffering our enemy too. Jesus bears this enemy suffering. It's what he knew would come to him as he rode into Jerusalem. It will be a suffering experienced in the events from Monday, Thursday into Good Friday with his betrayal his crucifixion and his death. And it is this enemy suffering that God will ultimately rebuff through the most grand and magnificent act the world has ever known. This act will put enemy suffering in its place. This act will delineate Between the suffering that belongs to the created order that lets us know we're creatures and the suffering that comes from our own hand as a result of sin, this act will put enemy suffering in its place and will reject it as outside of God's order. But for that story, for that story, we have to wait a little while. We have to keep watch and trust that God will do such a thing. Amen.